This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Here's a chap, grew up in a trailer park. I am clad in the shining armor of ignorance. All I want is the reader to say, yes, I think this is plausible. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? In 1990, I interviewed Simon Mason for his first novel, The Great English Nude. And now, a scant 32 years later, here we are again with his latest book, A Killing in November. Simon, thank you for joining us on Book Podcast. You're very welcome. Okay, this is a police procedural entertainment. I think that's fair to say, right? Yes, I accept that. Well, it is very entertaining. Am I right in thinking that you've uh, you've expressed an opinion no book can be called a classic if it's not entertaining? Yes, I did do that, actually. Uh, One of the uh, book projects I've worked on since we met is it was the Rough Guide to Classic Novels. And um, in that, uh, I said I said that very squarely. I don't think it can be a classic unless it's entertaining. And I said that because I think the test of a classic is whether or not the common reader, large numbers of readers, agree that they want to keep on reading it. And I think they only do that if it's entertaining. So in other words, not not because it's worthy or because it's on a, a reading list or something, but people agree that, it, that they enjoy reading it. So that's why you've started this series, I, I think. You've set it in Oxford. Um, it's a police procedural. I have to ask you, did the ghost of Inspector Morse intimidate <laughs> you at all? Um, I am clad in the shining armour of ignorance, I'm afraid, when it comes to Inspector Morse. I haven't read any, um, and I'm aware that that's a fault. But um, in a way, there was an upside because I wasn't intimidated. Uh, the danger is I'll have you know, duplicated or, or you know, done something else uh, by not knowing. But anyway, I didn't know. I don't know the novels. Well, uh, actually, the TV shows were better than the books, so don't worry about that. Um, but if you are in Oxford, obviously, and, and as Inspector Morse, I think, would tell you, you have to go a bit town and gown, don't you? Because um, Oxford has some of the most rarefied and affluent parts of the country, as well as fairly insalubrious pockets of, of, of deprivation and underclass. Now, your principal detective, D.I. Ryan Wilkins, comes from one of these milieu. He's a, he's, he's a chav, right? He is a chav, that's it. Drew, drew, grew up in a trailer park, yeah. It must be a challenge coming up with uh, an original detective, you know, because, I mean, the hard-drinking divorce gambler with a hidden code of decency has been done to death. So um, tell us about Ryan. He's, he's cut from different cloth. Yeah, and, and you know, again, my, my shining coat of, of ignorance may, maybe is a good thing because I'm, I'm not so aware of all the stereotypes in detective fiction. And Ryan just simply... Like I think lots of reader, uh, writers would say this, he wandered into my imagination. Um, I live quite near a trailer park, and so I, I cycle past it every other day. And um, I got thinking about, well, I, I was seeing these guys walking around. I got thinking, if you saw them, you know, in the, the baggy trackies and the loop jacket and the, the plaid baseball cap, you uh, drinking an energy drink and smoking and ha- just hanging around, you might think, Oh, there's a member of the criminal classes. But, I, yeah, I'd wanted to try to complicate that stereotype by having a character who might have no manners. There are lots of people in the world without any manners, but might nevertheless not be, you know, stupid, as you might assume, not be a waster, as you might assume, but might have um, might have done something with his life, might, in fact, be a good father, you know, lots of other things. So it was the character of Ryan 
that uh, I, be I began the story with, really. Well, when we talked about the greatest English nude, you based the character of Fluck on somebody that you knew. Is, is Wilkins based on anybody, or did, when you say he wandered into your, was he just come from whole cloth? Yeah, he did. He's not based on, on anyone. Um, he just, he's, he's an image that stuck in my mind, and I started trying to think him through. He has a problem with privileged elites, doesn't he? He does. He does. Yes. And, um, you know, I, th I think that's not uncommon. And, and coming back to what you said right at the beginning, Oxford is this place of of real contrasts, dramatic, uh, dramatic contrasts. And you see it in the city. And, and when I say I live near a trailer park, that's half a mile one way. Half a mile the other way is Christchurch College and the cathedral. And, you know, the bells are peeling and, and they're dining with fine wines and stuff. It's a real city of contrasts. And, and I think for lots of people who um, are in the city, who don't have those sorts of uh, advantages, didn't grow up in that sort of way, there will be naturally a sort of, well, I don't know why they have all the luck and I don't have any luck. People take him for, oh, obviously, <laughs> certainly a chav, and, and, and everywhere he goes, people think he's, uh, he's, he's a criminal or um, a, a ne'er-do-well. Some people even think he's, uh, he's doing work experience, don't they? Even, <laughs> even though he is a detective inspector. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the story. We have a beautiful woman strangled to death in the office of the provost of an Oxford college. And, and you have great fun with this, don't you? The, the big characters, the provost, the, uh, the porter. Um, it's all a bit... I'm not, no, I don't want to make another reference. I was going to say porterhouse blue, but um, what a great phrase you have for the porter. He had the impeccable footwear and scrupulous hair of a man of strictly traditional views. That, that's rather good. Did you have great fun doing the colourful characters? I, I, I did, yes. And uh, Porterhouse Blue is another book I don't know, actually. So I'm really, <laughs> I'm showing off my ignorance all over the place. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I really did. Um, I, I ought to say... The provost is a fictional character and he is uh, the fictional provost of a fictional college as well. So I, I'm not trying to say this is what all Oxford colleges are like, but I think I am saying, can we imagine it's plausible that there might be such a figure in such a position in, in the college? And he's not, as, as you will have read, uh, not a particularly nice uh, character and a m manipulative character and uh, one of those sort of people who are very petty in their positions of, of power. Um, and, and the porter, I mean, I've encountered porters, I suppose, in my life. And there is a type of porter that I think I was trying to describe. They Maybe it's part of the job, but there's a certain sort of implacable officiousness with which they greet the world um which i wanted to sort of try and get down on the page yes yeah, some people sort of take their their status from the people they serve don't they i always think that uh, doctors receptionists tend to be a bit like that yeah. and and, yeah. and, and a, a, an oxford college porter is going to be is going to be a bit full of himself yeah yeah no that's exactly it and in fact the the College porters at Christchurch, if I remember rightly, they they call, they they have the informal name among themselves the Bulldogs, and they wear bowler hats as a special mark of of Christchurch porters, not just any college porters. So yeah, you're right; it's connected with the institution. You have another detective um, uh, from the other side of the tracks, so you need to tell me about Ray Wilkins as well, and you might want to explain why they they practically got the same name. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so Ryan Wilkins is the chav from the trailer park, and uh, and he's white, I should say that, um, and grew up very disadvantaged, alcoholic father, um, and I've described a bit about him. Ray Wilkins 
is uh, Nigerian London heritage, um, very middle class, privately educated, went to Oxford himself, Balliol College, did PPE, got a boxing blue. He's a very natty dresser. He's suave, he's sophisticated, and he is at ease in the sort of world uh, of affluence or privilege, such as the university. So I, I wanted a, a, I mean, this is quite traditional. It's not an original move, I realize. Uh, a, a contrast between the two uh, detectives who would form a a partnership and and the similarity in the names is is as it were a, a plot device because uh, what happens is <clears throat> Ryan is is new to the uh, Oxford force and he's called out to this murder that you've uh, alluded to in Barnabas Hall simply because the receptionist get his name wrong they wanted to call out the other Wilkins the other Wilkins Ray would have been perfectly at home interviewing the provost in fact he he but, went but, to Oxford Ray didn't he. He went to Oxford. Yeah, he he knows this world. He knows these sorts of people, but Ryan, but Ryan, not only doesn't know the world, he instinctively does not like, as as you said, as a problem with privileged elites, and he gets sent instead, and uh, sort of mayhem ensues. You were once uh, compared with Martin Amis, uh, and even even in a police procedural entertainment, there are, there are sort of hints of why. I was I was particularly reminded uh, by your use of children. Uh, one one of the um, I mean, no, one of the most redeeming feature of Ryan Wilkins, the chav, is that he's a single parent and his little boy, also called Ryan, is yeah. angelic and, and Ryan Sr. adores him. I, I, I love the way little Ryan keeps correcting his daddy as I'm saying, you shouldn't say fucking daddy. <laughs> Lovely touch. But meanwhile, Ray and his wife have been trying unsuccessfully for a baby. I, the, the children are, are uh, terrific, but did you worry that it might get a bit heavy, um, you know, doing that? No, I didn't, actually. Um, in fact, the children were, when I was conceiving the story, they were an important part of it. And again, probably my sheer ignorance of, of how to write detective stories uh, was probably pushing me in this way. I wanted very much the characters that I was writing to, as much as I could, make them rounded, to make them have full lives, to make them have relationships that were interesting, sometimes uh, difficult, but sometimes very fulfilling. And as I said, in the case of Ryan the Chav, um, I wanted to work against the stereotype that that sort of person you assume has had four kids with different women and, and he's moved on and left them all behind. I wanted to have a, a different sort of character who could equally uh, plausibly exist, who as you say, he dotes on his son. And having children, having had children myself, I, I felt very strongly that children come out very different from their parents. So, so little Ryan, as you point out, is very polite and well-mannered and, uh, and kind. And he's, he's constantly correcting his father who loses his rag a lot and swears. Well, while we've also got uh, Barnabas College there, which uh, we've agreed it's, it's invented, um, it, there's a subplot of a, a, um, a trouble spot in Oxford uh, called Blackbird Lays, which is like a, it's a sink estate, isn't it? There's an ongoing yeah. incident there which has made it a, a no-go area for the police. Um, is that a real place? Yeah, Blackford, Blackbird Lays very much so. And um, it is, in fact, I, I think if you, if you look it up, there are three areas in Oxford, Blackbird Lays, Rose Hill and Barton, but Blackbird Lees is in is in the you know the bottom twenty percent of uh, disadvantaged regions nationally. So it's as run down as you as you presented. It, yeah, it really is. And when I was um, early on living in Oxford in the 
in the late 80s and 90s and there was all that hotting i don't know if you remember that kids were stealing cars and roaring up and down the roads and setting fire to them that was all going on in blackbird lees um and there were near riots there so it's an area of, of real deprivation and hardship. That's interesting, because yeah, as we've said, Barnabas College is invented. Uh, I suppose you just didn't want to kill somebody at Brazenose or Balliol. They, they would have <laughs> sued. <laughs> and I didn't want to. I didn't want to create a provost of of um, Balliol or or, or Brazenose uh, the, the way I have with the the provost. I might get into trouble about that. There's a, another highly contemporary note. Uh, the provost is schmoozing an obscenely rich Emirati sheikh. Uh, mm. to fund an institute for peace studies. That was a Weasley <laughs> phrase, isn't it? Peace studies. Uh, and, and this despite, you know, the human rights atrocities and things, which very much feed into the plot. Isn't it interesting how we will get into bed with contemporary kleptomania, kleptocratic billionaires uh, in, in real time, even while we're cancelling the monsters of the past, as they are in, in some ways at, at Oxford colleges? Yeah, no, that and I think that's really interesting sort of paradox. Um, and an another part of the, the the plot, which I mean, maybe you'll talk about, but there is a character who is a, a Syrian refugee. So a refugee who's come over as a result of the war there, employed by the college. And um, colleges have a, a real paternalistic side as well. And, and uh, are, you know, are very interested in things like peace studies. But at the same time, the lure of money sometimes mean, as you put it, they get into bed with, with uh these these criminal uh, billionaires and and that's been a sort of a, a scandal in 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 a number of instances over the the past few years with Oxford because they they rely a lot on on getting large injections of cash to to build these things institutions institutes and so on. Well, you've brought her up. Um, tell me a little bit about her about the uh, about the trafficked in fact the trafficked uh, Syrian woman. Yeah. Um, I can't remember where she, where she began, to to be quite honest. And a lot of my early thinking about a story is is sort of the form of daydreaming. And I, I think in a way she sort of strolled in, a bit like Ryan, uh, in a rather different way. And I became interested in her. And as soon as she appeared, I thought, well, that's very interesting in the context, as we've just said, of a college that is also courting um, a, a billionaire from that part of the world. And I wanted, I suppose, to just to try and explore a little bit the experience of what it might be like for a refugee coming coming here, the sort of the ups and downs, but not just the reception of such a person in Britain, but how they might actually feel. You know, they're, they're frightened, they're on their own, um, they're, they're maybe, um, maybe as she is, very religious and clinging to, to uh, you know, belief systems that, that might give them some sort of comfort. Oh, she's very just, intense, isn't she? She's very uh, uh, religious. She's very sincere. She's very religious and, and sincere. So, so that's a, a really interesting thing, I think, that, you know, she, she is very religious and therefore there is a tendency for the English people around her to think of her as an extremist, maybe a, uh, some sort of you know, links with a, a, terror, a terrorist base. Uh, but on the other hand, her, her religious belief is really sincere and it is something that, that gives her comfort after, you know, absolutely appalling experiences in, in Syria. I was going to ask you about your influences, but I think we've more or less dealt with that. You, you eschewed the idea of, <laughs> of finding, of looking into uh, the, uh, your contemporaries or your, your, your uh, past uh, writers. Uh, what about research? It's a police procedural. Um, yeah. Did you go and talk to the police? Did you, you know, follow them around? or did you just make it up out of uh, out of whole cloth 
Mick Heron, uh, the writer, says he's a firm adherent of the making it up school. And, um, you know, oh, the old my... novelist trick of using your imagination. <laughs> um, that's sort of my defense. I, I, I think I'm, I probably don't do as much research as I need to do. But in, in my defense, I would say I think it's really important for me anyway to, you know, try and keep the freedom uh, in order to let the story go where it wants to. And if I know too much, then I'm hedged in. I'm thinking all the time, Is would they really do this? Is it statistically likely that they would do this? All I want really is the reader to say, yes, I think this is plausible. And and my, my, my biggest area of weakness, I think, probably is, is in the police procedural bit, because I, I did not go and talk to the police. I found an awful lot of stuff online, so, for instance, there's a, a you know it, part of the story involves the police disciplinary procedure. You can go online and you can you can read the accounts of these proceedings and who said what and who was there and what the conclusions are, and you can get sort of the nuts and bolts. Um, and I, I hoped that that was going to be enough. And you get quite a lot of mileage out of that because Ryan's always being <laughs> being uh, disciplined, isn't he? I'm afraid so. <laughs> in, in that case, I want to ask you a technical question. There's there's oh. a very fine passage. I mean, there's lots of good uh, passages. There's a very fine passage where uh, Ryan is chasing a villain, which had me quite breathless. Now, I always think chases and scene setting are easier on the screen than in prose. Uh, in, in, in a book, you often have to take it on trust that it, that it works. How hard do you find the action passages? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I work very hard, is the is the honest answer, at the action passages. And I think of them as, as choreography. So I don't just think, you know, basically what will happen. I try to work out the 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 movements within the general chase to try and to try and, you know, give it rhythm, to try and build tension and suspense and, and uh maybe misdirection. And, you know, I try to throw in as much as I can to keep the chase as interesting as as possible but they, they for me they require quite a lot of work well this is the first of a series i i can tell i want to ask you another technical question how do you approach no. a book differently when it's a series rather than a standalone <clears throat> i think at first there isn't really a difference for me I, I i'm thinking of a particular story with a police procedural i mean there is an inbuilt sort of expectation that if you are doing such a thing, then it might turn into a series because that's quite a common phenomenon. But uh, as far as the story went, I just began with the first story. The, but the, 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 way, the way this worked in actual fact was I, I'd written three crime novels for young adults. And um, the publisher of River Run, uh, John Riley, read one of them and got in touch with my agent and said, would Simon be interested in writing an adult crime novel? So I, I had a chat with him, and I think in that very first chat, he sort of yeah, outlined what he likes, and one of the things was, I like a series. If it oh, I think publishers love series, don't they? If you can, if you can hook the, uh, the public, you know, sort of Richard Osman way, you're, you're made for life. Yes, although very often, I mean, it's just a fact that, that series go off. Um, so not all of them continue, but you're right that what the publisher wants is a successful series because then it all works together. All the sales of all the books get get greater and, and you know, there's more interest from TV or film or whatever. And the whole thing sort of builds collectively. Um, it, when I was writing the story, I began with the story, but quite soon on, I was thinking, 
well, if this does turn into a series, then I've got two characters here and I could maybe do other things with them later on. Oh, very much the odd couple, yeah. Yeah. Well, Simon, it's, it's great fun. I enjoyed it enormously. Uh, <laughs> thank so you. thank you very much. Uh, Simon Mason, A Killing in November, is published by River Run at fourteen ninety nine, and it's a good read. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>